Well, first, let's be clear about uh, PhDs and degrees. You know, thermometers have degrees, and you know where you stick those. Uh, I'm not I'm not disparaging my PhD. I'm just being honest. There are a lot of people walking around with degrees that, that don't know anything. In fact, I would argue that most of them don't amount to anything. They don't produce anything. They're not practitioners. I focused when I went to graduate school in military matters because I'm a professional soldier. And it was my obligation, I thought, since the American people were funding my education, to focus on military affairs and specifically at that point on the Soviet Union and to a lesser extent East Germany and Poland and Czechoslovakia. Those are those the areas where I focused. Now, having said that, again, it goes back to a set of assumptions. I think that Putin, if you go back and look at his willingness to negotiate, there was a point during the first three weeks when the negotiators met that Putin uh, said, I will immediately embrace a ceasefire while these negotiations are on. And uh, they stopped. The Russians stopped in their tracks. Of course, people in the West said, well, that's because they're logistically unsustainable and all this. But that wasn't true. He was sending a signal. I'm serious. I'm willing to negotiate. And remember that the whole thing revolved around the Minsk Accords. Nobody in the West pays much attention to those accords, but they were signed by Germany, France. We backed them. And we promised that the Russians who live in Ukraine would be treated as equal citizens, equal before the law along with Ukrainians. They would not be pressured to become Ukrainian as long as they were good citizens and obeyed the law. They could speak their own language, go to their own schools, go to their own church, and so forth. That was a big lie, as it turns out. And Angela Merkel, who was the German chancellor, was the first to come out publicly and say we lied. That was just to buy time for Ukraine to build itself up into the military power that it has become. Subsequently, Macron admitted it was a lie. So even after having been lied to prolifically about all the things that were important to the Russians, uh, he decided, I'll call a ceasefire, we'll see how these... Uh, talks progress. Well, the talks didn't progress. And then suddenly we had this man, Boris Johnson, who flew in as as effectively a surrogate for Biden and said, stop, don't give up anything. And that was because Zelensky had said, sure, I think we could live with neutrality. Actually made that statement, which was the end goal as far as Putin was concerned. We wanted to be neutral. In other words, you have this nice, large, neutral state the size of Texas that lies between Russia and NATO. Gosh, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. In fact, back in uh, 1999 and, and 1998, when I was the director of the Joint Operations Center at SHAPE headquarters, Supreme uh, Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, these discussions went on, and somebody said, well, what's Ukra- where's Ukraine in all of this? And everybody said, Ukraine's mission is to be a nice buffer. You know, don't, don't fight there, don't go there, let them be a nice buffer between Russia and us. I mean, that was widely viewed as a positive thing. Well... That was thrown out of the window. And instead, Boris Johnson says, we will back you to the hilt. We will give you everything that we possibly can. Your job is to go out there and fight. And we'll back you. And eventually, we will be victorious. The Russians will collapse. Putin will be gone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. None of that's happened. And today, Russia is stronger, I would argue, economically than it was before the war began. Our sanctions have been ultimately quite helpful to the Russians. Uh, they they are not a part of our Western financial system to the extent that they might have been hurt by us seriously. How have the sanctions been helpful to Russia? Well, they've managed to sell all of their energy products, all of their minerals, everything, agricultural products through others at higher prices that have ultimately reached their target destination in Europe and other parts of the world anyhow. 
So the amount of hard currency, if you will, from the West that's pouring in has actually increased. At the same time, they've discovered that they could sell virtually everything if they needed to to China and India to a lesser extent. Those two countries, these are over a billion people in each country, enormous economies. They want to do business with Russia. So that the absence of the European market, per se, has not turned out to be this terrible experience that everyone in the West assumed it would be. Wasn't that a chess game a lot of people saw coming because both India and China cannot self will never be self-sufficient on energy? Well, I suppose so. Uh, you know, I don't know that anybody regarded it as a, a chess game because the difference between Putin, whatever mistakes he made in terms of assumptions, shrink to insignificance next to the mistakes that we've made, I would argue. Because we made assumptions about Russia that were just completely wrong, as, uh, just like the rest of the world. Number one, Russia is a backward economy that will collapse quickly if we sanction it. In other words, that they're, they're not a true nation state in the Western sense. They don't have a developed economy. They can't survive. Yeah, we regarded it as some sort of mega island. Yeah, yeah. They don't have a real scientific industrial base. Now suddenly we see all of these factories uh, in Russia running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, producing ammunition, weapons, missiles, all these things we said they were going to run out of very, very quickly and couldn't replenish. We said that no one would support Russia, that Russia would be isolated. Well, in fact, I, I would argue that most of the world actually backs Russia against us that we and the Europeans are increasingly on an island all by ourselves. And Russia is not going to fall apart. Russia has become more cohesive. This is a state that rests on the foundation of Orthodox Christianity and Russian ethnicity. Now, there are plenty of people inside Russia who are not ethnic Russians. Those people are treated very well. They are treated as equal partners inside Russia. All you have to do is look at the Chechens. You know, and the Chechens are brilliant soldiers, by the way. I keep hearing people say, well, they're not really that good. Well, you could not be more wrong. Those people are superb, and they are fiercely loyal. And by the way, if you go back to the Tsarist period, every Tsarist army had contingents in it that were Cossacks, Uzbeks, Chechens, others, Turkic peoples, Tartars, working with them and fighting with them against whomever the enemy was, whether it was the Ottomans or the Austrians or whomever. So the, the point is that uh, Russia is more cohesive than we are. If you're looking for internal unrest, discontent, divisive forces, you can find those in spades inside American society. But that's not the case in Russia at all. So when you, when you look at the economy-wise, one may say, yeah, they're doing better today. Uh, but even prior to the war, they had a big birth and uh, death problem. I don't know if you've seen the numbers on their birth and death rate, if you want to pull that up. That's not a, uh, a good look. The closest thing you can compare that to as a case study, they're, they're having more people dying than being born. There's only one other country you can compare this to, and you know who that is. It's one of their allies. It's China. They, those guys have the similar issue. India is a complete opposite. And uh, we're not doing that great ourselves, but... Uh, Russia's not a good place when it goes. It comes down to that. But I want to go back to the thought. Well, wait, wait a minute. Before you leave, yeah. uh, Putin agrees with you. Yeah. And Putin has tried very, very hard to reverse that. The first thing he tried to do is to prevent the brain drain. Everybody with any talent or ability had been getting out of Russia since 1992. So he's tried to reverse that. I think he's had some success. He's tried to encourage people to have... How, large, by the way, if you, if you don't mind, how did he do the first one? I'm curious. Basically, by finding employment for scientists and engineers that otherwise had nowhere to go. 
He said, well, we've got to find employment for these people so that we can keep them here. We have to reward them for their talent. I think he's done reasonably well there. When it comes to the rest of the economy, you know, turning around this attitude that why should I bring two or three children into a world that's uh, dominated by alcoholic men that are destroying themselves and committing suicide mm -hmm. has turned out to be pretty tough. I think he's made some progress there. I think this war is going to help him enormously because I think the war is awakening a sense of Russian identity that is far, far stronger and greater than anything we thought existed. All you have to do is talk to the people that are inside Russia and ask Russians what they think. Everybody says, well, they're all afraid of Putin, so they're not going to tell you the truth. That's not true. That's just not true. And we're hearing as exactly what I said. Russia is closer united more today than I think it has been in at least 30 years or 40 years. Okay. So so then uh, as a as a competitor, whoever you go up against, you're going to do better if you put them as being overly calculating, meaning it's it's naive to just say it's a simplistic war. Let's just do this. This is what's going to happen. We're going to be this, right? Okay. Uh, you know, for me, sometimes you know how an enemy uh, forces you to do something to come out and say, see, I told you this is what they wanted to do the entire time. So, for example, I want to get your feedback on this. So, I, you know, NATO is trying to do whatever they can to get Ukraine to be part of NATO. No, that's not what we're trying to do. No, that's exactly what they're trying to do. And this is why they promised us they would never do this. And now they're going to be doing this. Nope, that's not what they're doing. So he's pushing, 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 pushing. And then all of a sudden, you know, the article comes off from Guardian. If you want to show that article real quick, I think it's Guardian. Uh, uh, you know which one I'm talking about? NATO accelerating the membership. Yep. Uh, NATO allies back fast track membership for Ukraine. Says cleverly, U.S. Foreign Secretary says Ukraine has evolved quickly. As Zelensky tells Summit, it can be engine of green growth. So <laughs> all of this time that they're talking about this, this is now leading to, you know, we have to use this as an opportunity to bring him into NATO. Then Putin's going to come out and say, well, I told you guys this was the entire intention, the entire, you know, this is why I'm doing X, Y, Z, because I knew you guys were doing this. Is he that calculating of a guy that he's forcing his opponent and his enemy to expose their hand? Or is it just accidentally that this happened because he didn't think the war was going to last this long? You know, I, I hesitate. You know what I'm asking? Yeah, right? yeah, I, I do. And uh, I think the man's highly intelligent. And I, there is no doubt in my mind that he views what you just said as a, a welcome development, that the, his opponent is essentially revealing his hand, saying this is what we're really all about. But I do think at the beginning he still thought there was a degree of goodwill in the West that he could exploit. Many individuals hold degrees without practical experience or a deep understanding of the subject matter. As a professional soldier, I chose to focus on military affairs during my graduate studies because it was my obligation to the American people who funded my education. Now let's talk about the assumptions surrounding Putin's willingness to negotiate. During the early stages of negotiations, Putin expressed his willingness to embrace a ceasefire which was often overlooked in the West. The negotiations revolved around the Minsk Accords, signed by Germany 
Germany, France and backed by the US. These accords aim to ensure equal treatment of Russian citizens in Ukraine, granting them rights and freedoms. Unfortunately, these promises turned out to be lies, as acknowledged by Angela Merkel and Macron. Despite being repeatedly deceived by the West, Putin still called for a ceasefire to gauge the progress of the talks. However, Boris Johnson's intervention changed the game. Instead of seeking neutrality, Solensky, the Ukrainian president, expressed openness to living with neutrality. This shift prompted Johnson to declare unwavering support for Ukraine and encourage them to fight. The assumption was that Russia would collapse, Putin would be gone, and victory would be achieved. Yet, none of this has come to pass. In fact, Russia has emerged stronger than before the conflict. Some argue that sanctions have hurt Russia, but that's not the full picture. Russia has managed to sell its energy, minerals, and agricultural products to countries like China and India, circumventing the Western financial system. Moreover, the Russian economy has been bolstered by its industrial production, including ammunition, weapons, and missiles. Russia has proven its resilience and cohesion, rooted in Orthodox Christianity and Russian ethnicity. To address concerns about Russia's demographic issues, it's true that the country has faced challenges with its birth and death rates. However, Putin has actively sought to reverse the brain drain and provide employment opportunities for scientists and engineers, stemming the talent outflow. While changing societal attitudes is challenging, the war has sparked a renewed sense of Russian identity and unity among the population. Contrary to the belief that Russians are afraid to speak their minds, the people I've spoken to inside Russia have expressed their support for Putin and their shared national identity. As for NATO and Ukraine, it's essential to recognize their intentions. NATO has been pushing for Ukraine's membership, contrary to promises made earlier. This intention was further confirmed by recent statements from NATO allies, including the US Foreign Secretary. Putin has long understood NATO's expansionist desires and views it as a calculated move on their part. By pushing his opponents to reveal their hand, he gains insight into their true intentions and exposes their ulterior motives. In conclusion, Putin is a highly intelligent strategist who has learned from his interactions with various US administrations. Initially, he believed in the possibility of goodwill and cooperation with the West. However, his experiences have shown him that the obsession with NATO and the underlying motives behind it are not aligned with Russia's interests. Putin's calculations have allowed him to navigate the geopolitical landscape. Putin had given strict orders, don't kill civilians, don't destroy infrastructure. And then when they realized they didn't have enough forces, they decided to essentially lay siege to places like Melitopol and Mariupol. In Mariupol, they had thousands of Ukrainians eventually surrender, but they killed thousands of Ukrainians. Uh, so they, they learned that it wasn't very sensible to go in building to building, room to room, and try and dig people out. It was easier to essentially cut them off, cut the power, cut the water, and then let time do its work for them. The problem for the Russians is this. We have said that we will not relent, that we are going to fight them until they're destroyed. If you tell the Russians that, the Russians say to themselves, well, this war will only end when we are on the Polish border. That's, that's a terrible situation, frankly, for Ukraine, because we've said we will not negotiate. I don't think Putin expected uh, that this would drag on. I think he really thought that once he showed us in the West that he was serious, and that the Russians would not tolerate this large anti-Russian military establishment in eastern Ukraine, that we would then say, stop, let's negotiate. And of course, he was wrong. Uh, his great fear was not just the Ukrainian force in eastern Ukraine, but that over time, we would emplace missiles in eastern Ukraine that could reach Russia's nuclear deterrent. 
And that worried him about his ability then to deter us from using nuclear weapons against Russia in the future. But how could this operation take so long? Well, very simply, he had a, a relatively small regular army. And this small force was simply not large enough to fight a war in a country the size of Texas. Remember, he was initially only interested in a portion of what we would call Texas. It's, a, it's as though you said, well, the Panhandle and Eastern Texas are Russian. The rest of it's Ukrainian. I want to ensure the Russian citizens in the Panhandle and in uh, Eastern Texas have equal rights before the law. They're not oppressed. They're not being brutalized. They're not being punished for being Russians. That was his goal. And then to find some sort of solution for the two republics, Luhansk and Donetsk, and to extract from the Ukrainians the understanding that Crimea was not up for discussion. It was legitimately Russian and had been for hundreds of years. And he hoped then that he could make Ukraine neutral as a multinational, multicultural state, which is rather interesting because we have all of these people currently waging war against him who ostensibly here are insisting on multinationalism and multiculturalism, but they want to destroy Russia when Russia was only interested in ensuring equal rights for their own citizens and neutrality for Ukraine. We insisted, no, Ukraine has to be a member of NATO, and the Russian position had been for decades, no, that touches our borders, it sits on our border. We will accept neutrality, no one's forces there, not yours, not ours, no one's except Ukrainians. And they held up the Austrian state treaty as a good model for Ukraine. And if you haven't looked at the Austrian state treaty, you should, because it has worked very effectively. And he was convinced that this could work in Ukraine. Obviously, he was wrong, and that left him no choice but to do what he's done. There are estimates that the Ukrainians have now fielded three armies in a row. The first army was largely destroyed in the spring. Contrary to popular belief, the Ukrainians were not winning relentlessly which was reported in the news media. Uh, the exchange rate with the Russians was never good. Then they built a second army in the summertime that was designed to take the offensive against the Russians. That army was largely destroyed by the fall. And then they built a third army, which is now dying. And much of it has died in Bakhmut, along this 160-mile front in the north of the Donbass, the Donetsk Basin. Bakhmut has become probably one of the largest bloodbaths we've seen, certainly since the Battle of Shanghai in 1937. Now there are estimates of 250,000 dead Ukrainians. Uh, that's that's uh, beyond what I had anticipated. I thought perhaps 200,000. I'm being told no, it's much higher. And it's again because of this overwhelming strike presence on the Russian side. They're, the Russians have the advantage in the air, they have the advantage on the ground. And the Ukrainians can't compensate for that because they simply don't have the wherewithal. Whatever we send to them is being destroyed almost as soon as it shows up at the front. We, they've, been, they've been sending these HIMARS systems, rocket artillery systems over there. The drones that fly over identify them, the artillery strikes them, and they're dead. And this goes on and on and on. I'm just saying all this aid to Ukraine is, is oh. a debt to them. Yeah, absolutely. They'll be in debt for centuries. So. Well, they, they already are, and there's no chance of ever climbing out of it. I mean, this is the great tragedy. Ukraine as a nation has been destroyed. They started out, we think, with maybe 37 million, 37.5. Remember, if you go back into the early 90s, they had almost 90 people, 90 million people living in Ukraine. 
When, when this war started, there were about 37.5 million. There were already 2 million Ukrainians working and living in the West. In other words, uh, everywhere from London to Rome. Now add to that 10 plus million refugees. Uh, at least 2 million Ukrainians that were Russians have gone into Russia. Another 9 million Ukrainians plus have gone into Western Europe and each day more go there. There are almost no women and children left. Uh, you do have some men, but we're looking at somewhere between 18 and 22 million people left in Ukraine. And how many of those men are physically fit and capable of fighting? I don't know what that potential is, but it's way below what people estimated initially. And you, they're now bringing in women and, and young boys and men over 40, 50, 60 to come in and, and join units that have been reduced from say 500 men down to 100 men. I mean, this is a, a tragedy unlike anything we've seen since World War II unfolding in front of us. Well, if you look at the people that are running uh, the show in uh, Ukraine right now, they don't seem to be terribly concerned about the destruction of the Ukrainian nation and its state. That's the best that I can say. They, they're behaving very much like Stalin. And we now know that the losses during the Second World War were not 20 million, they were at least 35 to 39 million. In fact, when I was in Moscow in 2001, I, I was told that they were then had counted 39,900,000 and were still counting based on their access to the NKVD archives. This government seems to think in those terms that they can sacrifice whole generations of men uh, in order to achieve their aims. I, I don't see any evidence that it's going to work. And the Russians are not going to run out of ammunition. I mean, we've been hearing about the Russians running out of everything. Their factories, uh, their manufacturing centers are turning out equipment and ammunition 24 hours a day, seven days a week in multiple shifts. The Russians aren't running out of anything, but we are. We've just about run out, run through our own war stocks. Same thing has happened in Europe where the war stocks, stocks were never very high to begin with. So. You've got the German defense minister saying, we can't send anything else or we won't be able to defend ourselves. And I think you're going to hear that from a lot of European states now. Is any of this helping Ukraine? I, I don't think so. I think the only thing that we've done is uh, played a key role in the destruction of Ukraine. And from the very beginning, I had said to several people, Ukraine is to the Russians essentially what Mexico is to us. If we discovered there was a large army that was built exclusively for the purpose of attacking the United States, and its goal was to quote-unquote liberate New Mexico, Texas, Arizona, and Southern California from the evil white Yankees, uh, I think we would have acted instantly to destroy that army. The Russians have essentially done the same thing. So there was never any chance that the Ukrainians were going to win an all-out war with Russia. And right now, they've got an all-out war with Russia. Well, you've got a nation of over 140 million fighting a country of, what, 37 million, now down to somewhere between 18 and 22 million. I don't, I don't think there's much chance that the nation of 140 million is going to lose. <clears throat> and then finally, the Russians are sitting on territory that has the resources, the manufacturing, the industry, the technical development that represents about 90% of Ukrainian gross national product. They already control it and they're not going to leave it. So how does prolonging this war help Ukraine? I don't think it does. I don't see any evidence for it. When you deal with the military and the political leadership in Washington, uh, 
The key questions that are never asked is, first of all, what is the purpose of this operation? And then someone says, well, the purpose is to remove Putin from power. Well, that's a dumb idea because it's not going to happen. If that's your goal, that objective makes no sense. So give me another objective. Well, we want to hurt the Russians. Well, in what regard? Well, we're going to sanction them. Well, we already know that the sanctions have failed. There's no chance of destroying the Russian economy through sanctions. On the contrary, the ruble is now one of the strongest currencies in the world. And the Russian economy has actually thrived because there are plenty of people in the world that want to do business with the Russians because the Russians have an abundance of food and abundance of resources, mineral resources, oil, natural gas. In Mariupol, thousands of Ukrainians eventually surrendered, but thousands were killed in the process. The Russians learned that it was more effective to cut off vital resources like power and water, allowing time to do its work. However, this poses a problem for Russia. We have made it clear that we will not relent and will fight until they are destroyed. This creates a terrible situation for Ukraine because we have refused to negotiate. Putin likely didn't anticipate that the conflict would drag on for so long. He may have believed that once he demonstrated his seriousness to the West and made it clear that Russia would not tolerate a large anti-Russian military presence in eastern Ukraine, negotiations would follow. But he was wrong. His fear was not only the Ukrainian force in the east, but also the possibility of missiles being stationed there that could reach Russia's nuclear deterrent. This concerned him regarding Russia's ability to deter a nuclear strike from the west in the future. So, how did this operation take so long? The Russian army was relatively small, and it couldn't effectively fight a war in a country the size of Texas. Initially, Putin was only interested in securing a portion of Ukraine, much like saying the Panhandle and eastern Texas are Russian, while the rest is Ukraine. Ukrainian. The goal is to ensure the rights of Russian citizens in those areas, without oppressing or punishing them for their ethnicity. Additionally, Crimea was not up for discussion, as Russia considered it legitimately Russian for hundreds of years. Putin's hope was to make Ukraine a neutral, multinational, and multicultural state. Interestingly, those currently waging war against Russia claim to support multinationalism and multiculturalism, yet their objective is to destroy Russia. Russia simply wanted equal rights for its citizens and neutrality for Ukraine. They held up the Austrian state treaty as a good model, emphasizing the importance of Ukrainian forces exclusively in Ukraine without any foreign presence. However, our insistence on Ukraine joining NATO contradicted Russia's position. They viewed Ukraine's NATO membership as a direct threat as it touched their borders. Russia proposed neutrality, a position they had held for decades. Unfortunately, negotiations failed, and Putin felt compelled to take the actions we are witnessing today. Estimates suggest that Ukraine has fielded three successive armies. The first army was largely destroyed in the spring, contrary to popular belief that the Ukrainians were winning relentlessly. The exchange rate with the Russians was never in their favor. They built a second army in the summer to take the offensive, but it was also largely destroyed. Now the third army is suffering heavy losses, particularly in Bakhmut along the 160-mile front in the north of the Donbas. The casualties are staggering, with estimates of 250,000 dead Ukrainians. This surpasses initial expectations, and the overwhelming strike capabilities on the Russian side contribute to the devastating loss of life. The Russians have superiority in the air and on the ground, making it nearly impossible for the Ukrainians to counter. Every support sent to Ukraine is swiftly destroyed upon arrival at the front lines. Ukraine is accumulating debt as well. They will be in debt for centuries, if not longer. The nation, once with a population of nearly 90 million, has been decimated. Millions have become refugees, seeking safety in Western Europe or Russia. Women and children are increasingly 
scarce, and the Ukrainian population has dwindled to somewhere between 18 and 22 million. The Ukrainian fighting force has also suffered, relying on men unfit for battle and even women and young boys to join decimated units. The tragedy unfolding in Ukraine is reminiscent of Stalin's sacrifices during World War II, where millions of lives were lost. The current Ukrainian government appears indifferent to the destruction of the nation and its people, much like Stalin's regime. The Russian military machine shows no signs of running out of ammunition or resources. Meanwhile, Western countries, including Europe, are depleting their war stocks rapidly. The international response and involvement in Ukraine have not yielded positive results. Instead, we have played a key role in the destruction of the country. From the beginning, I likened Ukraine's importance to Russia as Mexico's significance to the United States. If there were a large army intent on attacking the US, seeking to liberate New Mexico, Texas, Arizona, and Southern California, we would swiftly act to neutralize that threat. The Russians have taken similar actions in response to the Ukrainian situation. There was never a real chance for Ukraine to win an all-out war against Russia, and that is precisely what they are facing now. With a population of over 140 million, compared to Ukraine's reduced numbers, the odds are heavily stacked against Ukraine. Additionally, Russia controls the territories rich in resources, manufacturing, industry, and technological development, accounting for approximately 90% of Ukraine's gross national product. It is unlikely that the nation with the upper hand in all aspects will lose its grip on the situation. The destruction of Ukraine is heartbreaking, and it is clear that the current trajectory will not end well for the Ukrainian people. The Ukrainian government's actions, reminiscent of Stalin, only exacerbate the situation. The Russian military machine continues to operate effectively, while the international community depletes its resources. The tragedy unfolding in Ukraine serves as a somber reminder of the devastating consequences of war and the urgent need for peaceful resolution and diplomatic efforts. The future remains uncertain, but it is imperative that we learn from this crisis to prevent similar conflicts in the future. When you deal with the military and the political leadership in Washington, the key questions that are never asked is, first of all, what is the purpose of this operation? And then someone says, well, the purpose is to remove Putin from power. Well, that's a dumb idea because it's not going to happen. If that's your goal, that objective makes no sense. So give me another objective. Well, we want to hurt the Russians. Well, in what regard? Well, we're going to sanction them. Well, we already know that the sanctions have failed. There's no chance of destroying the Russian economy through sanctions. On the contrary, the ruble is now one of the strongest currencies in the world. And the Russian economy has actually thrived because there are plenty of people in the world that want to do business with the Russians because the Russians have an abundance of food and abundance of resources, mineral resources, oil, natural gas. So if that's the case, that's not a reasonable objective. So give us another objective. We never go through that. Well, if you don't ask the first question, what's the purpose, and come up with something reasonable, the second question is, how do you plan to do this? And no one, no one ever sat down, well, we're just going to drop an avalanche of equipment on top of the Ukrainians. We're going to give them our best intelligence. That should be enough. Finally, what do you want it to look like when it's over? Well, we want Russia to be destroyed and Putin to be gone. Well, again, this is absurd. This is nonsensical. What are you talking about? It is crazy, crazyville. So you don't have responsible, mature, balanced diplomats and military commanders talking to you. You're talking to people who are worse than amateurs. They're ideo ideologically blinded to reality. Their hatred has unbalanced them. You know, the first question I ask people when they start, well, 
You know, Russia, once Russia's destroyed, then it's just China. <laughs> Where are these Russian and Chinese armies mobilizing to invade us? Where are these vast air forces ready to attack us and bomb us? Where are these vast fleets uh, assembling off our shore to invade us and destroy us? This is just nonsensical. It's crazy. We are still fortunate in that we do live between two major oceans. We have an enormous strategic advantage over everyone. We've squandered it by making enemies where really, frankly, there were none. And that's very true for Russia. Russia actually cooperated with us very closely, especially after 2001. And their help in Afghanistan to us in the beginning was absolutely essential. If we hadn't had their intelligence and their support with the Northern Alliance, we could not have gone into that country and stayed for any length of time. The notion that Russia was this unconditionally hostile enemy was never true. I think it is now, and I think it will be decades before the Russians really recover from their experience with us. So, the, you know, at this stage, it's hard to see anything good happening for us. I don't think NATO is going to survive this experience. I think the Europeans are going to come out of this with new governments. I don't know if they'll happen next week or in six months, but I think governments are going to change in Europe. You're going to see new leaders emerge, and their attitude is going to be, why should we follow these Americans? All the things that we don't like about the Chinese, we can deal with here at home. If you don't want the Chinese to steal your intellectual property, then don't allow them into your laboratories, your corporate labs, your university labs, your research and development. Why let them in? Why let them study in our universities if you're that concerned about the Chinese? Why not defend your border? You're letting thousands of Chinese walk into our country illegally right now. We don't even know where they went. We don't know where they're going. We don't know what they're here to do. That doesn't seem to bother anybody. But those things should be addressed here at home first. And then you need a trade policy. And the trade policy is very simple. We'll do business with China if it's in our interest to do so. If it's not in our interest to do so, we shouldn't do business with them. It's a very simple prospect. And we got to get a hold, we got to get control of this very corrupt elite in this country. The, the people that shipped our manufacturing base to China are, are the wealthy ruling classes of this country. They began that process while Reagan was in office. And it simply snowballed in the 90s under Clinton. Lots of people got rich from shipping out those factories, those manufacturing centers. What difference did it make to us whether Ukraine was neutral or not? None. We should have made it neutral. When Eisenhower was president, he ultimately welcomed Austria's neutrality because he argued that we don't have the resources to defend all these countries. The more neutral states we create, the easier the military burden is on us. Well, that was in the 1950s when we were certainly stronger conventionally than we are today. And if you look at the balance of power between the, the various states, we're dealing with a continental power in Russia. We're primarily a maritime and aerospace power. Our strength is really at sea and in the air. We are only a land power in the Western Hemisphere. So the notion that somehow or another we're going to take on and defeat a continental power is ludicrous nonsense. And we are, we are failing to invest where we need to here at home. We are not investing in high-end manufacturing. We're not investing in the energy. We're not investing in the agricultural sector. These are our great strengths that we should capitalize on. We're not doing it.
And instead of fearing China, <clears throat> what we should do is limit our exposure where we think that they present a threat to us economically. Remember, China abandoned communism in the early 1990s. That's what people don't seem to understand. We keep saying, the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party. I challenge anybody to find a communist in China. These people are capitalists. They understand how to make money. And what China wants to do is wants to transform itself into some facsimile of Singapore. By the way, so do the Japanese and the Koreans. They're all very enamored of the Singaporean model. Well, that's reprehensible to us because we'd say Singapore is a fascist state, which of course it is. It's a partnership between the corporations and the government that goes far beyond anything we imagine. And then the rules and laws of that, those areas are strictly uh, enforced by the government and the government owns virtually all of the property. We don't understand Asia. We don't understand the people in Asia. We absolutely do not understand the Chinese and what they want. They do not want to live in a liberal democracy as we imagine it. They don't want to elect a, a president from a multi-party system. Xi is effectively the modern equivalent of the Chinese emperor. And they're very happy with that because they see that as absolutely essential to their security. And what are the three things that the Asians expect from their government? They expect security from external attack. And that was something the Chinese emperors failed miserably to do in the last 200 years of Chinese imperial rule. They expect the people to be fed, something else that the emperors failed to do at the end of their dynasty or dynastic succession. And three, they expect the population to be sheltered. Now, if you look at those three things, the Chinese leadership today has done those things very well. If you compare China to, say, India, there is none of the crippling poverty, the horrific poverty that you see on the streets in India does not exist in China. And China has 1.4 billion people. Those three things are what they want. We in the United States should be demanding something similar from our own government. Security, number one for our country. And that has been treated with complete contempt, if not total disinterest. If they were really interested in protecting us, we wouldn't have this wave of criminality sweeping across the country. We wouldn't have these open borders. How many repeat criminals do we routinely apprehend that have been released for all sorts of terrible crimes who've been deported and keep coming back? What sort of nonsense is this? Why do we tolerate these things? We have a government that seems to be suicidal here at home and suicidal overseas. They're picking enemies that we cannot take on and defeat, nor should we try and we don't have to. And at the same time, they're doing things here at home that are destructive to our society. It's hard to imagine a worst set of circumstances. And the question is not so much, <clears throat> what do we do about the government? What do we do about the American people? Who are the Americans? Where are they? What are they doing? Where, when are they standing up and saying no more? We will not tolerate this any longer. It hasn't happened because here, the standard of living is still too high. Life is still too easy. I think the current financial and economic crisis is about to change that. And so perhaps that will awaken the American people to their responsibilities to themselves. And maybe then we'll get a different government that wants to protect us, that wants to feed us, that wants to shelter us. We, we think of ourselves as this invincible and vulnerable colossus 
that bestrides the world. We're not. And we are, we are failing to invest where we need to here at home. We are not investing in high-end manufacturing. We're not investing in the energy. We're not investing in the agricultural sector. These are our great strengths that we should capitalize on. We're not doing it. And instead of fearing China, <clears throat> what we should do is limit our exposure where we think that they present a threat to us economically, but stop this ridiculous nonsense of going to war yet again 6,000 miles from the United States over an obscure island called Taiwan. That's silly. It's nonsensical. Just as fighting the Russians in Ukraine is nonsensical for us. It's irrelevant. It's crazy. I spent 28 years in the regular army after graduating from West Point. Uh, I left the army at the end uh, of 2004. I then began in a number of different jobs working with or inside the defense industries, either as a consultant or an advisor. And then uh, ultimately started uh, becoming a, a routine commentator on television and radio about military affairs and finally ended up as the senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense under uh, Donald Trump in his last months as president. First and foremost, we need to question the objective of removing Putin from power. Let's be realistic here, folks. That objective is simply not going to happen. So, what other goals are they aiming for? Some may argue that they want to hurt the Russians through sanctions. But we already know that sanctions have failed. The Russian economy is thriving, and the ruble is one of the strongest currencies in the world. Besides, the Russians have abundant resources, including food, minerals, oil, and natural gas, making them an attractive partner for many nations. So, hurting the Russians is not a reasonable objective. Now let's move on to the second question. How do they plan to achieve their goals? It seems like no one has really sat down to think this through. Dropping an avalanche of equipment on the Ukrainians and providing intelligence may sound impressive, but it's far from a comprehensive plan. We need responsible, mature and balanced diplomats and military commanders who can provide a strategic approach rather than relying on blind ideology and unbalanced hatred. Finally, we must address the question of what they want the outcome to look like. Destroying Russia and removing Putin from power. This is absurd and nonsensical. We need to face reality and stop living in Crazeville, where are the Russian and Chinese armies is mobilizing to invade and destroy us. The truth is, there are no such imminent threats. We are fortunate to be geographically located between two major oceans, providing us with an enormous strategic advantage. Yet, we've squandered it by creating enemies where there were none. Let's take a step back and examine our relationship with Russia. Contrary to popular belief, Russia has cooperated with us closely in the past. Their assistance was essential in the early stages of the Afghanistan conflict. Without their intelligence and support, our efforts in that country would have been severely hindered. The notion that Russia has always been an unconditionally hostile enemy is simply not true. Unfortunately, our actions have strained the relationship, and it will take decades for the Russians to recover from their experiences with us. Looking ahead, it's difficult to see any positive outcomes for us. NATO may not survive this experience, and European governments are likely to undergo significant changes. They will question why they should blindly follow the lead of the United States. If they are concerned about China's theft of intellectual property, they should focus on defending their own borders and tightening their trade policies. It's time to limit our exposure where we perceive threats and prioritize our own interests. Furthermore, we need to address the corruption within our own country. The ruling elite who shipped our manufacturing base to China are the ones responsible for our current predicament. This process began years ago and has only accelerated since then. We must regain control and invest in sectors where we have strengths, high-end manufacturing, energy and agriculture. 
These are the areas that can drive our economic growth and secure our future. As we discuss China, it's crucial to understand that they abandoned communism in the early 1990s. They have embraced capitalism and are focused on economic prosperity. China's goal is to transform itself into a Singapore-like model. We may not agree with Singapore's system, but we must acknowledge that the Chinese people have different aspirations. They prioritize security, food and shelter and their leadership has delivered on these fronts. We need to learn from their successes and demand similar results from our own government. Our government has failed to prioritize our security, evident in the wave of criminality sweeping across the country and the open borders. Repeat criminals are released, deported and find their way back into our communities. It's sheer madness that we tolerate such situations. Our government seems to be suicidal both domestically and internationally, picking fights we cannot win and engaging in destructive policies that harm our society. The real question we should be asking is not just about our government, but about ourselves, the American people. Where are we? What are we doing? When will we stand up and say, no more, we will not tolerate this any longer? Unfortunately, the standard of living is still relatively high, and life is comfortable for many. However, the current financial and economic crisis may serve as a wake-up call, forcing us to reevaluate our priorities. It's time for a shift in mindset, a reconnection with reality. We must demand responsible leadership, focus on our own strengths, and prioritize our security and well-being. It's time to break free from the shackles of misguided ideologies and make decisions that truly benefit the American people. Let us hope that the challenges we face awaken a sense of urgency and lead us toward a brighter future.